Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. It's a tough neighborhood. The mothers in one building band together to protect their children from the surrounding danger. When a little girl vanishes from beneath their eyes. How did a monstrous evil slip past their guard? Enter the world of forensic science, the science of crime, where a suspect's guilt or innocence can hang on a single piece of evidence. should die that way. I've never seen anything that horrific. One of the duties of a pathologist is to determine the cause of death. Watch on mobile devices or the big screen. All for free. No subscription required. Download Beely now. Like and subscribe. In ancient times, people marked the world outside their borders with the words, Beyond here there be monsters. They mounted guard against danger from the outside world. Inside the boundary, they kept their loved ones safe. Their greatest fear was that someday, a monster would cross that border. It's a bright July evening in Toronto, 1991. Emily Hood and her playmates are protected from the rough neighborhood surrounding their apartment building. They play under the watchful eyes of many caring women. Family dinner time is almost over. Emily steals a few more moments with her dad before he heads off to work. Emily's mom, Carrie, is taking the night off. She and her friend Stella are going to play bingo. That's fine with Emily because Valerie, her favorite babysitter, is going to look after her and her little sister. And there's still time before bed to play outside. Carrie knows the other mothers will keep a close eye on the kids. One by one, the other kids are called into bed.
few minutes later, the babysitter goes to fetch Emily from the playground, but she isn't there. Valerie knows Emily's chatty and likes to visit people in the building. She begins to check with the neighbors. One woman says she saw Emily heading towards the basement. Most have seen nothing. Now Valerie begins to panic. Maybe Emily is hiding. But she is nowhere to be found. Emily's mother is called home from the bingo hall. Her dad leaves work immediately. Within minutes, the police are alerted. Detective Terry Doyle gets the call. She wasn't in her apartment, so we searched the building. Wasn't in the building, so we searched the neighborhood. It was like finding a needle in a haystack. In some ways, that apartment building was kind of like an island in a storm. You've got crack dealers, prostitutes, mental health centers, group homes, halfway houses from prisons. And this building sits pretty well in the middle of all that. An intensive search begins throughout the neighborhood and across the country. Police collect statements from all the tenants in the building. Even Stella, her two sons, and her long-term boarder are questioned. Everyone has an alibi. Everyone is upset. Police check out the report that Emily went to the basement. There was a stranger down there who saw Emily that evening. But he had no time for the little girl. He was just hanging out with his friend the building superintendent. Police receive hundreds of calls. One lead is promising. The night Emily went missing, a man described as having a lazy eye was spotted on a nearby street with a little girl in his arms. A little girl with blonde hair. A nationwide search begins for the man with the lazy eye. little three-and-a-half-year-old girl is a, is a true innocent and it's very upsetting for everybody it was bad enough that she's not with her mother and what has happened to her is really gut-wrenching and it's very hard for citizens and it's equally hard for police even though we have to put on uh, what's called a brave front the police now concentrate on the halfway house next to Emily's building it's exactly the kind of place any mother would fear. Among some of the occupants were um, people convicted of sex offenses. So clearly that was a location that we wanted to look at very closely. Not all of them were previous sex offenders, but they all had psychiatric background, I guess it's a fair way to say it. But they were very cooperative and they allowed us in uh, more than once to search the premises and they were cleared reasonably quickly. A week has passed and police have no suspects. 
it's hard to keep spirits up. Her friends try to give Carrie comfort and hope. Everyone's worst fears are finally confirmed. It's 20 days since Emily disappeared. A tiny body is found floating in the ship channel at the mouth of Toronto's Don River. The reality of Emily's death is a crushing blow. By the time that I had arrived, the officers had already secured the scene where the body was found. So my first priority was to photograph everything and have it videotaped before anything else is disturbed. You actually have to carefully remove some of the uh, the debris around the body to uh, look at the, uh, the clothing and, and make an identification. Emily Hood is fully clothed and there are no visible injuries. Her body is taken to a nearby hospital for closer examination by forensic pathologist Dr. Frederick Jaffe. There are two things I noticed. The underpants were rolled down to about halfway down the buttocks, which was somewhat unusual. Once we uh, examined the interior organs, uh, we did find a tear in the vagina. There was very slight blood staining of the underwear, um, suggesting that this uh, tear at one time bled. We do know that she died shortly after her last meal. After death, the stomach does not empty. Nothing passes from the stomach into the intestine. The final pathology report states suffocation as the most likely cause of death. Emily's disappearance is now a murder investigation. A monster has crossed the border. Who could have snatched the little girl from under the vigilant protection of so many people? Was Emily kidnapped, taken out of the building, then killed? How did she end up floating in the ship channel? We did receive information about a man who had been recently released from jail for two counts of sexual assault on young girls who lived in the area and also had a boat in the area of where the body was found. Investigators focus serious attention on this new lead. The investigation is now two months old. Police are looking at every possibility to break the case. The pedophile looks promising. That individual was looked at very closely for two or three weeks until we were able to account for his actions throughout the period. 
Once again, the search for Emily's killer is frustrated. But police do finally catch up to the lazy eye man. Well, he had a history with the police, and he did have a history of uh, psychiatric problems. But the little blonde girl people saw him with the night Emily disappeared is his daughter. Still, he continues to act like a guilty man. I suppose his paranoia just wouldn't allow him to admit that he could be a completely innocent party. The police have cast a wide net outside Emily's building. They've caught nothing. But forensic scientists have spent weeks examining the clothes Emily was wearing when she was found. Her body had been in the water for almost three weeks. Even so, a large number of unique cloth fibers were still caught in the folds of everything she was wearing. This immediately catches the attention of Jim Crocker, a fiber specialist at the Center of Forensic Sciences. It became apparent fairly quickly that there was a particular fiber type, which was uh, very short, an orange fiber. The fact that these fibers were fairly straight they were all about the same length, uh, indicated to me that it was probably from some type of velour material. And the velour are used extensively, of course, in upholstering. But at last, the police have a solid lead. Exhibit A, tiny fibers from a piece of fabric that will weave a net to catch a monster. Ordinarily, we accumulate fibers Two hours later, uh, 80 to 90% of those fibers will be gone from our body because they're very loosely held. The orange fibers that were transferred to Emily's clothes didn't have a chance to be shaken loose. For Jim Crocker, finding the source of the orange fibers is vital. It could possibly indicate the last place where Emily was alive. Police refocused their attention on the apartment building looking for a piece of furniture covered with orange velour. Jim Crocker's search pays off when they reach Stella's apartment. When we entered the living room, there was a sofa and a hassock that were precisely what I would expect these fibers to be from. This is exactly what we're looking for but certainly that would indicate to me that at the time of death or uh, very close to the time of death, that would be the environment where the body would be. Of course, when the investigator said that, no, she was not in that apartment, my expression was, oh, I think she was. Once we located the couch that these fibers came from. We subsequently conducted a search warrant and seized an extensive number of articles, including the couch and the other furniture in the living room. Clothes, a comforter, and a mattress are also seized and sent to Jim Crocker. With this new evidence, police want to question the occupants more closely. So Stella, her two grown sons, and the boarder, Wayne Snowden, give police their alibis one more time. Stella was playing bingo with Emily's mother. 
One of her sons was attending a night school class. The other was visiting a friend. Snowden also went to visit a friend who wasn't home. He came back to find the search already on for Emily. Stella swore Emily had not been in her apartment that day. So how could Emily's clothes have so many fibers from Stella's apartment? Every time she left her own apartment to go to the deceased's apartment, she would carry with her some of these orange fibers. They were literally spread throughout that apartment. There's also another type of fiber on Emily's clothes. Its origin is a mystery until Jim Crocker looks at the comforter from Wayne Snowden's room. I found that there was a comforter there that was composed of purple, burgundy, and black. It was a geometric pattern. All of these types were ultimately found present on the clothing of the deceased. The orange couch fibers were found in every room in Stella's apartment, but fibers from the comforter were only found in one place, Wayne Snowden's bedroom. What kind of a man was Stella's boarder? He very rarely ever came out. If he did, it was to go to this one friend's home and spend the evening there, and then he would come back home again. To a great degree, he was a person without a personality. He was just uh, somebody that was immediately forgettable. He'd lived in Stella's apartment for three years. He never caused a problem. Still, all the evidence is pointing to his bedroom as the place of death. But suddenly, it's not so simple. Snowden had recently thrown out his mattress. It would be covered with fibers from the orange couch and his own comforter. What if Emily had come into contact with the mattress after it was thrown out? That might explain how the fibers were distributed within the clothing. That means she might never have been in his room at all. Investigators still can't be certain Emily was in Snowden's bedroom until they find out what happened to his mattress. Furthermore, tests for semen or blood on the clothes seized from Snowden's room come back negative. It's another blow for police. But Wayne Snowden's alibi isn't holding up well under scrutiny. Detectives question the friend whom Snowden said wasn't home when he came to visit. The man tells police he was in the whole evening. Now Jim Crocker gets the answer he needs. The discarded mattress was actually tossed into the alley beside the building. Emily would have had no way of playing on it. The gate to the alley is always locked. The comforter fibers on Emily's clothes could only have come from Snowden's bedroom. The investigation has been underway for several months. Now Keith Kelder, a blood specialist at the biology lab, has the chance to perform a new and more sophisticated test on a pair of Snowden's cutoff genes. We found a number of washed bloodstains in the front and on the back, primarily in the front. The thinking was that since uh, Mr. Snowden was developed as a suspect, that this might be the child's blood. And so we proceeded with that in mind. The initial testing was negative. 
but I took it a step further by cutting out a tiny little fraction of the staining for each one of these and tested it directly for blood, which we do, what might be washed blood stains, which I suspected in this case, and it came up positive. That blood stain is located on the inside fly of Wayne Snowden's cutoffs. The location is incriminating because Emily had been a victim of sexual assault. DNA tests confirm a match to her blood. The net has finally closed around a monster. Nine months after her death, Wayne Snowden is arrested for the murder of Emily Hood. To suggest that Snowden is a fairly strange character is really not saying much, but he stayed in his room almost all the time. His life consisted of watching TV and sleeping. Hardly anybody ever noticed him. Um, he was just there. But how had Snowden eluded the massive search and spirited Emily's body out of the building? Identification officers construct a model of the building. It will help them understand how the murder of Emily happened and how the killer could conceal her body and escape with so many people around. Immediately after she became missing, there was a lot of police activity, but the other side of the building on the intersecting street, there was no traffic. And we were able to show by this model that our, our suspect could have carried the body into the basement through a set of hallways and actually exited the building on another street out of the public eye. It was now Carrie's turn to comfort Stella, who couldn't believe that all this time she had been innocently sheltering Emily's killer. We're dealing with somebody who's only three and a half years old. They haven't had time to become bad or to become world-weary. They don't know their true innocence. And people expect the police to protect of anybody to protect the true innocence. And the police expect of themselves. No one knows how Emily Hood ended up in Wayne Snowden's room inside Stella's apartment. Still, ident officer Rick McEwen has his theory. The puppet was found in our suspect's room. When we found this puppet, we all realized, having children of our own, how susceptible children are to somebody playing with a puppet. So it was just another possible way on how our victim could have been lured into this apartment. surrounded by shadows and fears, the women of Emily Hood's building created a protected and caring environment for their children to shelter them from the monsters without. They never suspected there was one living in their midst. 
Enter the world of forensic science, the science of crime, where a suspect's guilt or innocence can hang on a single piece of evidence. trust someone who has killed before, even if he has served the time and paid his debt to society? Can he ever really be a citizen above suspicion? In 1978, a high-class prostitute was found murdered. The cause of death was asphyxia due to strangulation. And what this means is that uh, when there is a force applied to the neck, uh, the blood from the uh, face cannot escape anymore, and you get bleeding points in and around the eyes. And of course, that means ligature strangulation. An eyewitness said on the night of the murder, she heard yelling, and saw a man straddling the prostitute and yelling, Die, bitch, die. The man's name was Brett Morgan. Because he was allegedly drunk at the time, Morgan was convicted of the lesser charge of manslaughter and sentenced to ten years. In prison, Morgan met a convicted sex offender named Larry Fisher. Morgan would later remember a particular conversation in which Fisher told him the best way to get away with a rape and a murder was to let some other guy take the rap for it. The other guy taking the rap for the rape and murder was named David Milgard. But a review of the biological evidence seemed to support Milgard's claim that he was innocent. You cannot link the body fluids of Mr. Milgard with the body, and there are no bloodstains on him or on his clothing which would link him with the scene or the body. The Supreme Court of Canada ordered a review of the Milgard case. That's when Brett Morgan came back into the story. Morgan testified against the inmate who had confessed to the rape and murder. But there was an unexpected silver lining. In the courtroom that day was an Ottawa journalist, Elaine Wallace, who had contributed to Milgard's defense fund. As Elaine would later write in her diary about watching Brett Morgan testify that day, I was so impressed with him. He's calm manner and strong shoulders, a very brave man. At that time, Elaine Wallace was living with her boyfriend, Michael Laurier. Within a week, Elaine wrote Morgan a letter in prison, 
another followed. And he eventually replied. As Elaine got to know Morgan, she was impressed with his character and believed he deserved early parole. She started a one-woman campaign to free Morgan. Michael Laurier didn't approve of Elaine's campaign, and they soon broke up. She was falling in love with Morgan. They started having conjugal visits in a prison-supervised motorhome. Eventually, Elaine succeeded in getting Morgan early parole. He moved into her house, and they began a fairy tale existence. She bought him a truck so he could start his own business as a handyman. Now he had himself a real home and his own business and a real girlfriend who loved him. Six months after they moved in together, Elaine drove her Jeep out into the Gatineau Hills near Ottawa for the weekend to visit friends. She was never seen alive again. Search parties failed to find any clues about her disappearance. But Brett Morgan refused to give up. In July, two and a half months later, Brett Morgan stumbled on a gruesome discovery. Exhibit A, human remains found scattered in the woods. To determine if the remains are those of Elaine Wallace, a forensic identification team scours the area to collect all of the bones. What remains of the jaw and teeth are sent to a forensic dentist for identification. Initially, I received the skull, the lower jaw, and the majority of teeth except five. The conclusions are really quite simple in this case because we have photographic evidence as well as the dental records. Her dentition was so particular that we could see this in photographs. It was Elaine Wallace. Meanwhile, to determine the cause of death, the rest of the bones are sent to a forensic anthropologist, Dr. Kathy Reichs. What I do is I work on the bones, and I'm brought into cases where the pathologist can't do a normal autopsy because the body is just a bones, or the body is burned or mummified or badly decomposed, or perhaps it's just body parts. Kathy Reichs also happens to be a best-selling mystery writer. Being a writer perhaps makes me more aware of details, of, of looking at, at very, very minor details that I, I might have ignored. Some of these details concern the effect of seasonal changes on a victim. The victim went missing in April and the remains were recovered in, in July. 
that's spring. You've got a lot of things going on in the spring. You've got insects becoming very active. You've got scavenging animals becoming very active, as well as the natural elements of the rain and the melting snow and, you know, the things that are occurring at that time of year. All of that contributed to making the recovery difficult. Nothing was going to be easy about this case. Though Elaine's body was found in July, Morgan had gone to police back in April when she first disappeared. Morgan started off the interview with John Savage and I by saying, I'm going to be right up front with you. I've killed a woman before. I killed a hooker in Alberta in 1978. That set me back. It's hard not to be suspicious of someone who has once been convicted of murder, but investigators didn't want to jump to conclusions. He had a very calm way about him, a very low voice, uh, very gentlemanly. Morgan describes the days leading up to Elaine's disappearance. He explains that Friday night, Elaine got a call from her ex-boyfriend, Michael Laurier. After talking to Laurier for what Morgan says was an hour, Elaine announced that she had decided to go to the Gatineau's to visit him and his daughter and some other friends. The next morning, Saturday, Morgan said he withdrew money from a cash machine around one. So by the time he helped Elaine load up the car and saw her off, it must have been 2 p.m. After she left, he had lunch with a friend, went for a bike ride, and had dinner in downtown Ottawa. The next day, Sunday, he became alarmed when he got a call from Michael Laurier saying Elaine hadn't showed up at all that weekend. On the Monday, police found Elaine's Jeep in the Gatineau's. They found her ID, her bank card, and two presents she had brought for Michael Laurier and his daughter. But there were no signs of her, no footprints, nothing at all. Now suspecting foul play, the detective asks if anyone would want to hurt Elaine. Morgan mentions that after he started living with Elaine, Michael Laurier always seemed to be bumping into them. Morgan is suspicious that Michael Laurier has never gotten over Elaine. There is one more potential suspect, Larry Fisher. Morgan told my partner and I that he perceived that perhaps Larry Fisher might have done something to harm him and in fact may have some involvement in the disappearance of his girlfriend. The ex-boyfriend and the inmate need to be investigated. When police break the news about Elaine's disappearance to Michael Laurier, he seems overly emotional. He maintains he spent the entire weekend with his daughter and that Elaine never made it up to his place. Police would need to check out his alibi. Maybe she had made it up there. Maybe there had been a confrontation. Maybe the ex-boyfriend had killed her. Was it jealousy for being rejected in favor of Morgan that caused Michael Laurier to lure her up to the Gatineau's to kill her? And what about the other possible suspect, Larry Fisher? Investigators learn that Larry Fisher is out on parole and could have committed the crime. They try to track him down. 
Meanwhile, Morgan, desperate to find out anything about Elaine, goes directly to the media. He was talking a lot to the media, telling the media that my honey has gone missing and I will do everything I can to find her, preparing uh, missing persons photos, put the victim's picture, her description, what she was last seen wearing, what she was last seen driving, and actually went up to the area of Quebec and posted these missing persons uh, photos. But as helpful as he is, police still can't rule Morgan out as a suspect. We asked Morgan if his girlfriend had a will. He walked down to the, uh, to the bedroom where they kept their financial records, and within 30 seconds, he pulls a will out of a filing cabinet, like, like that. The will was made out by hand, by her, bequeathing everything to Brett Morgan. Morgan intensifies his search for Elaine. In early June, approximately one month after Elaine disappeared, Morgan is approached by a recent graduate from a private investigator's course. Her name is Corinne Renault. She offers to meet and discuss the case to help him find Elaine. Little does Corinne realize that this story is about to take another bizarre twist. Morgan and the recently graduated private investigator Corinne Renault meet several times to discuss the case. Meanwhile, police have checked out Michael Laurier's alibi and he's cleared. They also learn that Larry Fisher was picked up by police out west on the night that Elaine went missing. Larry Fisher is also ruled out. Police now zero in on Brett Morgan, especially after detective work uncovers a huge hole in Morgan's account of the day Elaine left. Morgan told police he went to the cash machine around one and that Elaine left around two. But records from the cash machine show that Morgan using Elaine's only bank card made his withdrawal around three. This same bank card was found locked in Elaine's abandoned Jeep. How could she have left around two, as he said, if Morgan made a withdrawal with her only bank card at three? At that point, Brett Morgan was the prime suspect. Detective Palfer learns of Corinne's involvement and arranges a meeting with the private eye. They tell her what they know about Morgan and ask her to help them nail him. Even though it may be dangerous, Corinne agrees. Now it's time to set a trap. The bait, Elaine's money. They enlist Elaine's bank manager in their scheme. I had the bank manager call Morgan at home and tell him with respect to his assets in the home and the mortgage, a person cannot be declared dead until they're missing for seven years. And so basically, unless that body is found, nothing will happen for seven years. And he wanted the money, so I think 
that really pushed him to say to himself, I better find that body. In July, two and a half months after Elaine disappeared, Morgan and Corinne take a drive into the Gatineau Hills. He's determined to find Elaine's body. But Morgan has grown suspicious of Corinne. He's testing her, and she knows it. What he doesn't know is that she's wired. What she and the police don't know is what else he may have planned. A surveillance vehicle follows them. But Morgan eludes them and turns up a side road, where he comes to a dead end. He jumps out and heads into the bush. Fifty yards in, he comes upon the grisly remains. Investigators can hear Morgan carrying on. He says he knows it is Elaine by the clothing. This is after a horde of officers and civilians have been searching the area for over two months. Corinne is terrified. Is he planning to kill her too? To her relief, Morgan wants to leave and report this to the police. The next morning, he's arrested and charged with the murder of Elaine Wallace. But to get a conviction, investigators need to prove a rock-solid motive. That's when forensic accountant Gary Tim enters the picture. We're in the practice of forensic and investigative accounting. It's a practice where we conduct investigations of a financial nature, anything from fraud, uh, money laundering, drug, drug proceeds, uh, to murder matters. The main thing I, I would believe that forensic accounting established was the financial motive with respect to Mr. Morgan. Gary Tim produces a chart that shows Elaine's bank balance in blue and her line of credit in red. Prior to Morgan's release, Elaine always had a positive bank balance indicated on the chart in blue. But after he moved in, her bank balance diminished and her debt grew substantially to the tune of $25,000 indicated in red. What this appeared to do was start putting more financial pressure on both victim and because she put it back onto Mr. Morgan, onto Mr. Morgan. This is what detectives believe had really happened on that Saturday morning that Elaine was supposed to leave for the Gatineau Hills. Morgan had been conning Elaine about repaying her the $25,000 he owed her. Worse, she had discovered he had been forging her signature and taking money from her account. Investigators believe Elaine was planning to report Morgan to authorities. If she did, he'd be back in jail. Morgan wanted to prevent that at any cost. Knowing that she was going to visit Michael Loria that weekend, Morgan came up with a plan to frame Elaine's ex-boyfriend. Elaine never saw it coming. Police believe Morgan murdered Elaine somewhere in the house. Then Morgan dumped her body near Michael Laurier's house, abandoned the Jeep nearby, then rode his bike back to the city. As to the cause of death, because Morgan had covered his crimes so well, it presented a difficult problem for the forensic team. 
In fact, it would be what Kathy Reichs could not find that would be very revealing. Because I found no bullet holes, I found no knife stab marks, I found no blunt instrument fractures to, to the bones, we thought perhaps strangul strangulation might have been a, a very high probability. There's a little tiny bone in the throat uh, called the hyoid bone, and often in manual strangulation, that's fractured. And that bone had not been recovered on the first scene recovery. So that's why we went back the second time to see if we could find the hyoid bone. Unfortunately, it's a very tiny little bone, and unfortunately, we're not able to recover it. But given that Morgan had once strangled a prostitute, investigators are able to make a circumstantial case that Morgan had killed Elaine the same way. It wasn't based on physical evidence. It was based on the ability of the prosecution to construct from circumstantial evidence a feasible explanation of what happened to this victim. And in constructing that, they used opinions from the pathologist, from the dentist, from the anthropologist, from the entomologist. They didn't have the traditional hair and fiber or blood spatter, the physical evidence that's always, often important, but they had enough of it that they could put together circumstantially from these expertise to construct a convincing scenario. Despite the difficulties in proving a totally circumstantial case, Brett Morgan was convicted of first-degree murder. And you can't help but feel an empathy for the helpless victim, the victim who is, who is weaker, who is in no way asked to bring this kind of violence on themselves. And I think that was the case here. I was extremely saddened by the fact that another human being reached out the way she did to assist this man to get him out of jail, to pay his legal bills, to give him thousands of dollars to set up a business, to be his friend, his lover. He totally conned her, and then because he wasn't satisfied with the amount of money he was receiving, or perhaps their relationship wasn't what he thought it was going to be, he decided to kill her and just cast her aside like, like an animal. Morgan had killed before and was granted early parole only to kill again. To think that it cost a generous soul her life challenges the decision to give a killer a second chance. A brutal murder in an upscale neighborhood. The murder weapon in pieces on the floor. Incriminating evidence left behind. Police are convinced they have their man, but the suspect insists it was someone else. Who will the jury believe? Enter the world of forensic science, the science of crime, where a suspect's guilt or innocence can hang on a single piece of evidence. Acts of violence. You hear about them every day. 
You just never think one could happen to you or a member of your family. It's September 1992. Tuesday night at the Findlay House is a school night like any other. Bedtime stories are over, and Alan and Madeline Finley tuck their children into bed. Soon after, they themselves turn in for the night. Alan Finley is a well-regarded physician in Calgary. He needs to be at the hospital early the next morning. night, Madeline is awakened by shouting. At first she is confused, then what is happening becomes all too clear to her. Someone has broken into the house. In a matter of seconds, Alan Findlay has been fatally wounded. Madeline loses her husband. Her two young children lose their father. The lead investigator on the case is Calgary homicide detective George Bushel. We don't handle that many uh, house brigands where a, a victim of, uh, is in the household actually loses their life. Most of the suspects that do house break-ins are young. They like to get into the house during the day when most people are carrying out their jobs. This robber chose nighttime. And for the thrill of it, thought he could even snatch Alan Finley's wallet from right under his nose. But it was not in Alan Finley's nature to let his family be threatened or his home be robbed. The doctor wasn't a man to stand there and say, just leave my family alone and get out of here. And he wanted to ensure that nothing was going to happen to him. And so he went after the guy. Alan Finley was, above all else, a devoted family man. His murder becomes a high-profile case in Calgary. After all, if he could be murdered, no one is safe. Bushel is determined to bring Alan Findlay's killer to justice as quickly as possible. He and his investigative team searched the crime scene for clues as to the killer's identity. We found a black baseball cap right where the assault took place. 
at the bottom of the stairs. Inside the cap, they find a fresh piece of torn skin. They figure it's the killer's. They then turn their attention to the murder weapon itself, a kitchen knife in pieces on the floor. The blade had been broken three times, which indicated a bit of a frenzied attack. The knife probably broke off in the doctor's body. When investigators search for signs of forced entry, they find that a kitchen window has been pried open Inside the kitchen, forensic ident officer Jim Edwards makes an important discovery. Using oblique lighting, Edwards is able to isolate an otherwise invisible clue the killer has apparently left behind. As he stepped through the window, he transferred dust from the sole of the shoe onto the kitchen countertop and continued to step away. That dust remains on the countertop and it's not visible without the use of a strong light source. What you're seeing in the photograph of that impression is done with that light shining across the kitchen countertop here. Ident officers find more footprints in the flower bed. They also find smudge marks on a basement window. When I first noticed them, I thought they were unusual. I made note of it, mental note of it, and I continued my investigation. My powdering for fingerprints. I wanted to find fingerprints. In the alleyway behind the house, Investigators find Alan Findlay's leather jacket. There is an abandoned car nearby. The keys were in the ignition, so we made the assumption that whoever did this came in a stolen car. The car was there to load up stolen property. Police contact the owner of the stolen car. He can only find one thing missing the leather driving gloves that he always keeps inside his glove compartment. Bushel then receives some encouraging news. Earlier that morning, police arrested a man trying to break into a student residence at the University of Calgary campus just a few blocks away. He was seriously inebriated. He didn't have a key, he didn't have a jacket on and was cold, and he had blood on his clothes. so. He looked like the ideal candidate for having just done a murder. The murder suspect's name is Craig Kosky. When Kosky is taken into police headquarters for questioning, he is so drunk hours must pass before he is sober enough to respond. Police are sure they have their man. Koski tells police that his girlfriend lives on the campus. He says he's welcome there, but he didn't have his key last night. At his uncle's house earlier that evening, he claims he'd been in a fight and that the blood on his clothes belongs to his uncle. Koski's alibi checks out. Forced to release his only suspect, George Bushel is back where he started, with no idea who the killer is, and no idea where he has gone.
When Bushel reports back to Madeline Finley, he is forced to tell her that he has just released his only suspect. Bushel sees what Madeline must be going through. He assures her that he and his investigative team will not rest until her husband's killer is brought to justice. Bushel next tries to figure out how the killer got away. There are no subways in the area and the buses stop running at midnight. Bushel contacts every cab company in Calgary. One of the cab drivers he talks to remembers picking up a fare not far from the Findlay house not long after the murder took place. The driver says that the man who called for the cab used the name Sheldon. The cab driver remembers the man's address. And we asked the cab driver if there was any, anything unusual about this guy's appearance. And he said, uh, no, at first he said, well, not really. And we said, well, did he have an abrasion, anything on his forehead and that? And he says, yeah, I come to think of it, the dark, it was fairly dark, but I, I think there was an abrasion on his head. When investigators descend on the residence in question, they find Sheldon Clatt, a petty thief well-known to Calgary police. They ask where he was the night of the murder. Clatt refuses to answer. They ask how he came to have a cut on his forehead. Platt again refuses to talk. But the contents of his apartment are soon speaking for him. Police find a pair of running shoes which they hope will match the footprints found at the crime scene. They also find a freshly laundered jean jacket stained with what appears to be blood. Inside the jacket, they find something else. A pair of gloves matching those reported missing from the stolen car. This is Exhibit A, a pair of leather driving gloves that leads to the killer of Alan Findlay. Even after police inform him that he's being charged with second-degree murder, Klatt stays silent. Investigators now realize that the case will be won or lost based on physical evidence. When IDENT officer Jim Edwards learns that murder charges have been laid and that a pair of leather gloves has been recovered, his mind immediately races back to the crime scene. It wasn't until after the homicide detectives told me that they had these leather driving gloves seized from the suspect that I thought those marks I saw in the windows may have been made by these gloves. Edwards decides to do something that has never been done before. He sets out to prove that glove prints can be just as unique as fingerprints. When we do a fingerprint comparison, we're comparing the unknown or crime scene impression to a known that we have on the police files. And I applied that same principle with the follicle ridges I found on the, on the window to the impressions that I had made myself with that glove. This is a photograph greatly enlarged of an area of that impression. And you'll note here that there is definitely a seam present. 
I found the same unique ridge formation on my test impression. So that gave me a starting point. Edwards is encouraged by his initial findings. To prove his glove printing theory, he logs countless man hours consulting leather experts, veterinary pathologists, and toxicologists throughout North America. Edwards is not the only tenacious member of the investigative team. Forensic biologist Sandra Korkosh has been on the case since the beginning. She calls Bushel with the results from the DNA tests on the piece of skin recovered at the crime scene. I talked to the detective, you know, minutes after I, I pulled off the first test results and was very excited to get a match. And that match is right here. This is the baseball cap. This is the DNA from the baseball cap. And it matches the accused. Under Canadian law, the prosecution must fully disclose its case to the defense before a trial can proceed. When Sheldon Klatt learns about all the forensic evidence amassed against him, he suddenly rethinks his vow of silence. As it turns out, Klatt says Detective Bushell has been right about almost everything. Klatt was at the crime scene that night. He did participate in the robbery, but he did not kill Alan Finley. Klatt says there were two of them at the house that night. His partner is the one who did the killing. According to Klatt, he and his partner in crime, Eric Haynes, had staged a number of break-ins in the Calgary area before they targeted the Findlay house. Klatt insists it was Haynes who broke into the house, while Klatt himself waited outside. It was Haynes who armed himself with a kitchen knife, and Haynes who stole Alan Findlay's leather jacket. Klatt says Haynes led him into the house. While Klatt searched the basement for items worth stealing, Haynes went upstairs. Hearing a scream, Klatt claims he rushed upstairs to find Haynes and Alan Findlay struggling violently. Blood must somehow have gotten onto his jacket during the struggle. He must have lost his baseball cap while fleeing the house. He had no idea that Alan Findlay had been murdered. George Bushel doesn't believe Clyde's story. Still, he has to prove that Clatt is lying. So what about this partner, Eric Haynes? Could he have been the killer? Once again, Bushel is forced to deliver bad news to Madeline Finley. Just when it looked as though they'd closed the case, Bushel has a whole new murder theory to investigate. Were there two men in the Finley's house that night? In her initial statement to police, Madeline said that she saw only a shadowy figure. Bushel now asked her to think back. But Madeline's memory of events remains the same. This means that Klatt's lawyer can argue the shadowy figure did indeed belong to Eric Haynes and that Klatt, as he claimed, was elsewhere in the house at the time of the murder. 
Investigators suffer another setback when biologist Sandra Korkosh cannot identify the source of the blood stain on Clatt's jacket. Extracting DNA from denim um, back at that time did provide us some problems in that denim like this often extracted the dye in the denim with the DNA. Unable to say for sure that the blood sample is Alan Findlay's, investigators now begin to hammer away at the inconsistencies in Klatt's story. Eric Haynes insists he had no part in the murder. He tells police that Klatt has done far more than simply tailor a story to fit the evidence. Klatt had recently made a direct phone appeal to Eric Haynes. He phoned a friend and said, will you take this rap for me? And the guy said, are you nuts? Klatt's outrageous plan was to confuse the jury. He figured that if Haynes confessed to the murder, but evidence pointed to Klatt, the jury would be divided and both men would go free. When Haynes rejected the idea outright, Klatt decided to go ahead and finger his former partner for the murder anyway. Haynes produces several witnesses who confirm that he was elsewhere at the time. With Haynes cleared, the focus of the investigation shifts back to Sheldon Klatt. Jim Edwards has now finished his forensic work on one of the shoe prints found at the crime scene. This is a photograph of the footwear impression found in the flower bed below the attempted point of entry into the residence. You'll note some characteristics here that make it possible to determine a make of shoe. Uh, in this case, we're dealing with a Nike impression and a portion of the N appears here in the upper center portion of the photograph. These are the shoes seized from the accused at the time of arrest. And you'll clearly note when examining them that the Nike trademark appears in the center of the sole. Clatt's shoe also matches the footprint found on the kitchen counter. I enlarged the photograph of the actual crime scene impression, the sole of the shoe, and my test impression of that sole. This shoe, seized from the accused, made the impression at the crime scene. But the stolen driving gloves are Jim Edwards' trump card. When the suspect was arrested, photographs were taken of any injuries that he may have had at the time. When his right little finger was checked on the inside near the nail, there was a slight cut noticed. And the right little finger of the glove has a crescent-shaped cut, which would indicate to me that this individual was wearing these gloves. During the trial, the prosecution is able to argue that Klatt's attack on Alan Findlay was so violent, so brutal, that the blows forced Klatt's hand up the knife handle onto the blade itself, slicing open both the glove and Klatt's finger. That evidence is suggestive enough, but in an unprecedented decision, the trial judge allows Edward's glove print testimony to be entered as evidence as well. You can see here, by the marks left by the gloves on this pane of glass, there are very unique markings left by this pair of gloves, and we could treat this just like a fingerprint. In court, I presented the glove impression evidence by way of a chart which I prepared. The points I found in the unknown 
are in the known as well so they are consistent with one another edwards insists that the glove print impression proves that clatt had been at the scene of the crime when clatt's defense counsel argues that edwards is not a glove print expert the trial judge replies he is now edwards groundbreaking leather research has paid off but will the weight of the forensic evidence be enough to convince the jury that sheldon clatt acted alone i think with the evidence we collected at the scene if you compare it to a jigsaw puzzle each one of these pieces of forensic evidence is a piece of that puzzle and as you start to complete that puzzle it becomes overwhelming the jury agreed clatt was found guilty of second-degree murder to acknowledge both the brutality of the crime and the community's abhorrence of it clatt received the longest prison sentence ever given for second-degree murder in canada 25 years inside edmonton maximum security institution but for alan finley's family the outcome is hardly a consolation because of sheldon clatt's random act of violence their lives will never be the same stupid and brutal everywhere they went they left a trail of blood could bloodstain experts make sense of a senseless crime and decipher clues fast enough to stop the bloodshed the world of forensic science the science of crime where a suspect's guilt or innocence can hang on a single piece of evidence that when any liquid strikes a surface it creates an absolutely predictable pattern when that liquid is human blood and it's found at a crime scene knowing how to interpret those patterns can make a powerful investigative tool exhibit a a ceiling tile with a tiny mist of blood what bloodstain experts could learn from this one tile would put police on the trail of a killer on a friday night Ottawa detective Jerry Savarin is heading home when a call comes over his radio. Shots are fired. That's the call comes in. Shots fired. So when you get when you respond to a scene like that, you always kind of try to think, okay, shots fired. Hopefully, it's not that serious. But it is that serious. Mr. Chung, the convenience store owner, has been shot in a robbery gone out of control. He is rushed to the hospital. But he dies on the way. As the only witness, the son stays behind to help police. 
He tells the detective it was just before closing time. Two suspects entered the store, and one suspect went behind the counter towards his father, asked that everybody hit the floor, get down on the floor. He froze. The son froze. He didn't know what to do. He saw his father go behind the cigarette display case, and there he heard some shots being fired. He heard uh, two shots, uh, bang, bang, and then he heard a pause, and then there was a third shot. He laid down because he was afraid he was going to be next to be shot. And then he heard the door opening. The son ran to the door, then to his father. His father told him, take care of your mother and sister, and take care of the store. Unfortunately, convenience store robberies are some of the most difficult to solve. Few clues and too many suspects. And in this case, the robbers wore gloves and balaclavas. You know right off the bat that you won't have any witnesses that will be able to tell you 100% these are the guys. And now you've got to try to work on other ways to identifying these people. That's when the detective turns his attention to the blood. He assumes the trail of blood on the floor is from the wounded store owner chasing the robber. But when I interviewed the son, son tells me, no, my father collapsed right at the back. He never made it to the front of the counter. So the first thing that ran through my mind, one of the suspects is hurt. This will be the key to cracking the case. From the stains at the scene, investigators get a sample of the gunman's blood that can be tested for DNA. A bloodstain expert may be able to tell investigators exactly how the gunman got injured. If bloodstain analysis is a language, bloodstain patterns is its alphabet. In fact, it's a tradition that starts with the Bible. The Lord said to Cain, blood of your brother cries out to me from the soil. And that's really how we want to view it. The, the blood speaks to us when we go to crime scenes. In this case, a crucial piece of evidence is almost overlooked. We knew that a shot had been fired. We could see that there was a bullet hole in a ceiling panel. In fact, uh, it was difficult at that time to see the aerosol misting, the stains that were on that panel, until we took it down. One of the principles of blood stain analysis is that the faster blood moves, the smaller the drops. In high-velocity impacts, say from a gunshot, the blood is moving so fast that the stains are tiny, forming what is called aerosol misting. If the aerosol misting is there, that means that the person was very close to the surface at which the misting struck. Uh, aerosol misting will only go th three to five feet. The robber's injury had occurred three to five feet from the ceiling. Also embedded in the tile, investigators find small fibers of black stretchy wool, consistent with material commonly used in gloves. From the son's account, investigators knew the gunman had been wearing gloves. Added to this, a ballistics expert diagrams the angles of the three bullets fired during the robbery. 
From all this, investigators are able to piece together an astonishingly detailed account of the events that the son hadn't been able to see after being forced to the floor. The gunman had shouted at the store owner to empty the cash register. Mr. Chung must have picked up a stick and swung it at the gunman. The blow knocked the gunman's hand, causing him to shoot off the tip of his own index finger on his other hand. The bullet ended up lodged in the ceiling. Enraged, the injured gunman shot the store owner twice. The second shot at point-blank range. Then the gunman picked up the cartridges and yanked the cash register off the counter. The son is devastated. He wants the killer caught. The police want the same thing, and fast. Someone who has killed once is more likely to kill again. All they have to go on is the injured gunman and a trail of blood. The police work around the clock to solve the convenience store murder. The most promising clue they have is knowing that the murderer had shot off part of his own finger during the robbery. They contact the hospitals to see if anyone has shown up at emergency with a wounded finger, but no luck. But luckily for police, the son got a glimpse of the license plate number on the getaway car. The next step was the car. We had to find this car. Uh, we knew if the suspect was bleeding, there'd be some blood there. They stole the cash register. They stole some cigarettes. So there was evidence there to be gathered, and that's why your first 24 hours are very important. So investigators put their energy into finding the getaway car. Finally, on Sunday, a break. The stolen car is found abandoned. The cash register has been smashed open and the blood in and around the car matches that of the injured gunman. Also, all four tires are missing. It is one of the first clues that these aren't run-of-the-mill criminals. They're below the mill. Investigators have reached a dead end. The blood trail goes cold. For Victor Chung, knowing his father's killer is still on the loose, there can be no closure. wonder when the next blood clue will turn up. A week after the convenience store murder, police receive a bizarre 911 call. A teacher at a small public school outside of Ottawa says she and her students saw a young man and a blonde woman across from the school. She saw the man douse his car with gasoline and light a match to it. After several failed attempts, the car finally caught fire. And because the man was standing too close, he got caught in the fireball. She said he shut the car door before running away down the street. By the time firefighters got there, the 
the fire was out. What the man didn't realize was that by shutting the car door, he starved the fire of oxygen. But just as the firefighters were about to leave, they noticed something grotesque, a fresh trail of blood. One of the officers at the detachment noted that there was some blood dripping from the trunk area, and he had placed a jar underneath the trunk where the blood was dripping into it. So there was so much volume of blood in that trunk that uh, it required a jar to start to be filled up. They open the trunk expecting to find a body, but all they find is more blood. Inside the car, even more blood. Shortly after that, police get another 911 call to pick up the man who tried to torch the car. His name is Pierre Carrier, and he just happens to have a severely injured index finger. Though he denies any involvement with the convenience store murder the week before, again, the blood speaks. Police are able to get a warrant for the blood-soaked dressing from Carrier's finger. When the lab does a DNA analysis of Carrier's blood, it matches the blood on the ceiling tile and the floor of the convenience store. They can now put Carrier at the scene of the murder. In a dumpster outside Carrier's apartment, investigators find more incriminating evidence. They find three spent cartridges and a ripped up photo of Carrier holding a 357 Magnum. When the gun is eventually located, a ballistics expert links the cartridges to the bullet that lodged in the ceiling tile and the bullet that killed Chung. But just as police are cracking the convenience store mystery, a new mystery is opening up. When Carrier was picked up, his only injury was his finger, but the police discover that his underwear is soaked in blood. When the blood is analyzed for DNA, it is not Carrier's. Rather, it matches the blood found inside the car and dripping from its trunk. Whose blood is it? Because there is no body with which to compare all this blood, the alleged victim remains a mystery. According to bloodstain expert Vince Hawks, the blood spatter in the car tells a chilling story. The aerosol mist on the windshield again suggests someone has been shot inside the car, probably from three to five feet away. Interpreting the blood stains on the front seat suggests the driver was the victim and was probably shot while the car was moving. One more thing. The distribution of the blood inside the car suggests that there were three people present when the shooting took place. Who is this nameless victim? And why were they killed? Well, the next thing that we were looking for, really, is that when, uh, when the car was set on fire, we knew there was a girl, a woman that ran away from the scene. That's who we were looking for. Who is she? How did she fit into this bloody scenario? The answers would lead right back to the trail of blood that started with the convenience store murder.
While police are still searching for the blonde seen with Carrier when he tried to torch the blood-stained car, the story takes another gruesome turn. A farmer's dog drags home a plastic bag containing a human body part. Further investigation reveals other bags stuffed with body parts near the farmer's property. DNA tests will prove they come from the same body. And the DNA is consistent with the blood in the torched car and on Carrier's underwear. Meanwhile, police have run a check on the torched car's license plate and find out it is registered to a Mark Dubois. Police discover Dubois was a friend of Carrier's. Where is he now? And how does he figure into this horrific chain of events? Then police get a second tip. Another farmer near where the dog found the body parts tells investigators about seeing a man and a blonde woman building a suspicious bonfire days before at an abandoned barn. When police sift through the ashes, they find remnants of clothing, shoes, and a wallet. They also find a tiny metal strip, the kind embedded in social insurance cards for identification purposes. They discover it belongs to Mark Dubois. It is beginning to look as if Mark Dubois was murdered in his own car. But why? And by whom? Police finally find the blonde seen walking away after the car fire. Her name is Lisa Brown. She is Carrier's girlfriend. This is what she tells investigators. Pierre Carrier was itching to prove he was a tough guy. So with his friend, Marc Dubois, he planned the convenience store robbery. Since it was next door to Lisa's apartment, and she and Carrier were known to Mr. Chung, it was another reason for him and Dubois to wear balaclavas. But when robbery turned into murder, it freaked them both out. Their adrenaline went into overdrive. According to Lisa, they hid in Carrier's apartment. Paranoia began to set in. Carrier was afraid that a photo he'd taken a few days earlier posing with the murder weapon might be used against him. So he ripped it up. Then in a flash of brilliance, he put all the pieces into a bag of garbage along with the three spent cartridges from the robbery and tossed the whole thing into a dumpster outside his apartment. That was the bag of incriminating evidence the police had found. Meanwhile, according to Lisa, Mark Dubois was ready to crack. He hadn't been the gunman, but he was terrified he'd be convicted of the shooting. He confided to an acquaintance that he was thinking of going to the police. Carrier found out about it. He told Lisa that he had no choice but to kill Dubois. Under the pretense of going to a new hideout in the country, they all piled into Dubois' car. Then, as Marc Dubois drove along a secluded stretch of country road, he was murdered. 
Lisa and Carrier stuck Dubois' body in the trunk and drove to an abandoned farm. According to Lisa, the next morning, Carrier dismembered it with a chainsaw, stuffed the body parts into plastic grocery bags, and burned their clothes and all of Dubois' things. That was where investigators later recovered the metallic strip that identified Mark Dubois. Then Carrier and Lisa pitched Dubois' body parts along a roadside, which was where the farmer's dog found them. After that, Carrier tried to burn the car to get rid of it as evidence. Meanwhile, Lisa had arranged to meet Carrier back at her place. But Carrier got lost and was eventually caught. But there is still the question of who killed Dubois. That's when the blood speaks one last time. All the bloodstains within this scenario confirmed that the driver was seated in the driver's seat at the time of impact, and the driver was shot from behind because the projected stains were forward onto the windshield and onto the left side of the window. Knowing Marc Dubois would be suspicious if he, Carrier, sat in the back, Carrier sat next to Dubois. Lisa sat in the back. She had the gun. And as Dubois drove along that country road, she shot him. Then Carrier sat on the dead man's lap to stop the car. That's how his underwear became stained with Dubois' blood. And though he changed into new clothes afterwards, he hadn't changed his underwear. Lisa Brown confessed. She was infatuated with Carrier. Carrier told her that if Dubois ratted him out, they would never see each other again. So she was willing to do anything he asked, even commit murder. However, weeks later, she had already fallen in love with someone new, a woman she'd met in jail. And Pierre Carrier meant nothing to her. Pierre Carrier was convicted of first-degree murder in Marc Dubois' death. Lisa Brown pleaded guilty to manslaughter. The blood trail from the second murder led directly back to the first. Pierre Carrier was convicted of the second-degree murder of the store owner. Blood was the key to unlocking the whole grisly story. Luckily, a dedicated investigator and a team of forensic experts were able to decipher the bloodstained patterns and solve two brutal homicides. Mark Dubois lost his life because he was a follower who followed the wrong person. But the heart of this tragedy is still the senseless death of the convenience store owner. Well, certainly we should never forget that it was an innocent store owner. 
I was working hard to make a living. The uh, poor family, they lost the store, they lost everything after this. And they had to just kind of start all over again. While the language of bloodstained patterns can reveal volumes, the language of human cruelty is indecipherable. There was less than $200 in the cash register. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.